hockey fans in Canada, the United States, and Newfoundland. Cool Button Uncensored Hockey Podcast is on the air. Season 1, Episode 12. Yes, I stole that from the great Foster Hewitt, Mr. Craig Button, who is in Winnipeg, God's country. I met Foster once. God wanted me to meet Foster, and I met him once. I'll never forget it. 40 years ago, Exhibition Stadium in Toronto. One of my idols growing up, Craig. Give an autograph? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Well, awesome. you think about the voices of hockey, right? And the voices of hockey, you know, where you used to get the games on radio and, you know, they, they took you into the rink. Like, you know, you, you think about the rink as a, as a church as as a chapel, right? Like they brought you into this sacred place of the hockey arena and they told you the stories of these players that, I mean, it's not like today. I mean, if you think about the way the game is presented and how, how much access we have to the game, the access we had was through their voices. I remember as a, as a young boy in Montreal. So we never went to the Montreal Canadiens games. My parents had tickets, right. But like Saturday nights was their social night out. Like they went and they had dinner and everything that went with it. But I remember Wednesdays, the odd time we'd get to go, but Wednesdays as a kid, we'd sit down and be able to watch like the first period of the game. And then we'd go upstairs to bed to school and we'd be listening to the game on the radio because you didn't want to go to school the next morning and not know what happened. Like, you know, so, I mean, those voices were, were, were absolutely fantastic to, to take us into those arenas and, you know, keep our, you know, kids had dreams and goals. There's no different today. They get to watch the kids, but the kids, when we were growing up, Steve, same dreams and goals. And we we're always uh, using the voices of those we heard uh, broadcasting their team's games. Those are the voices we use to describe our own play. Coolius with the old time winner. They win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> well, we grew up the same way because I have the same stories. And I wonder if using your imagination helps you later in life. Like, what radio would have, well, maybe podcasts is, are, is the new radio of when we were kids. I remember going to bed, you know, if there were late games on from Los Angeles or Vancouver, you know, I was lucky. I, I had a bedtime, but it was altered for hockey. And that's just the way it was. And, you know, my parents were pretty strict, but they, they gave me some rope. And there was a time for people who don't know as we're coming upon you know, the anniversary of 90 years since the opening of Maple Leaf Gardens, the Foster Hewitt was as popular or more popular than the players as he he came off the train and went through Western Canada, whether it was exhibition games or real games, because he was the star. He was the first broadcast star in Canada, and he invented the game. He shoots, he scores, and calling the first game from the penalty box, uh, then going to Mutual Street Arena and everything else. And, and for me, it's imagination. Even as a kid, there was a show on one of the rock stations, Theater of the Mind, which was Boston Blackie, like, like Hollywood on radio from the 50s, where they would use your imagination and it allows you to think. And, you know, it was murder mystery and a whole bunch of other things. And then when Foster talked, it allowed you to think, what does the Boston Garden look like? How does it smell? The, the, the lights in, in Chicago until you... Craig, and then you got to go to all the, I'm, I'm lucky that I got to go to most of those places, but the sights and sounds of those buildings only came to me through radio. And it's almost gone to hear a whole game on the radio. I know the truckers on Sirius XM, they'll be driving all night. So they only can listen to the game on the radio. 
But given a choice now, people can watch every game. Every game is on television. But to listen to the game on the radio because, oh, you know, if your favorite team is Montreal Canadiens, 50 television games, 30 radio. So you had no choice, radio only. And it was okay to just try to do your homework or something else and listen to the game on the radio. I actually miss it, Craig. I actually do miss it. Well, you talk about imagination. That's exactly what, like, you know, you talk about, okay, what does it feel like? You mean that, that famous line left to right on your radio dial, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, people go radio dial, what's a radio dial, right? Like, you know, but, but and, and you know, that's, that's what we have now progressed. You know, you talk about imagination and, you know, with hall of fame weekend coming up and, you know, before we get there, but 1977 Christmas day, 1977, Steve, the World Junior Hockey Championship. I, I, I want your imagination to take over. Okay. The World Junior Hockey Championship is in Montreal. Wayne Gretzky is playing for the team. Now, we've heard about Gretzky. Get up in the morning. We'll open up our Christmas gifts. Mom cooks uh, the, the Christmas breakfast. And my dad, who was running Central Scouting, NHL Central Scouting at the time, well, he's going to go to the World Junior Championship. Well, Guess who gets to tag along with that? Good old Craig. Good old Craig. Now, here's where your imagination. So Gretzky scores this magnificent goal against the former Czechoslovakia. Comes in, he fakes to his left, comes back to his right, leans to his left, and then flips a backhand over the shoulder. And I'm in awe. No, there's not multiple replays. There's no jumbotron. Like, you know, it's the old forum clock. There's, it's a clock. It's not a jumbotron. And you watch it, right? That you, that you see it once. And you're mad. I remember the next day going to the rink, outdoor rinks with all, all my friends and everything, showing them this goal. You got to believe. Here's what he did. And we spent, I'm telling you, we spent probably. 30, 40 minutes trying to recreate that goal. And I say, no, no, that's not how it was more like this. And, 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 and here, here you are trying to describe something and w- trying to emulate this fantastic goal. I mean, Wayne was 16 at the time. He was 16 years old. So, you know, I, I, you think about imagination and you know, how you tried to take something you saw and then somebody else takes it and goes, well, here's how, here's how he described it. Here's how I see it. Right. It's fantastic. It really is like, you know, yeah, and you mentioned about remembering, and we're, you know, in Remembrance Day in Canada and Veterans Day in the United States, and I've seen some of the things that you've posted, and, you know, we're in troubled times, and you could argue we've always kind of been in troubled times, doesn't matter what era, almost what decade, and uh, if you go back in time long enough, maybe what century, but when you say Veterans Day in the U.S. and Remembrance Day in Canada, what comes to mind for you and your family, Craig? Well, what I would say, Steve, is that, you know, there's three words that we use on, on, on this day as lest we forget. And it, it really, they're meaningful, they're strong, but we can never forget because when you start to really stop and consider what the young men from Canada, from the U.S. went and fought for, you know, they went and fought for something far greater than their own country. They fought against evil. And if you go back centuries, Steve, you know, wars have always been fought against evil and for the right thing. And you got, you got, you got young people that are saying this is worth our, uh, our lives to go and fight for something that we deeply believe in. And there's a lot of lives lost. And, you know, it's not just thankful, being grateful and thankful, and we are. 
but we can never forget. We can never forget why they were, why they were ready to make the ultimate sacrifice because it was to fight evil and wherever evil is in the world, <laughs> we got to eradicate it. And, you know, when, when we sit here and, and we wear the poppies and, you know, people in the United States always ask me, you know, I'd love to get some of those. And, you know, one of the great things in Canada is the poppies that everybody wears uh, right through uh, Remembrance Day. So, you know, a lot of the soldiers, not a lot of the soldiers, not very many soldiers from that era still alive. And it's up to us, Steve, to make sure that none of us ever forget, that none of us, that we let people know that what they fought for was something far greater than and more meaningful than, uh, than we can ever realize. And let's not take it for granted. I love when we get into November and same thing last night and the night before. It doesn't matter if it's Minnesota against Arizona. There's Andre Turney and his coaching staff and Dean Evison and his staff, all the poppies. And I'm sure somebody's sitting yeah. in the crowd going, what are, they all are wearing. A, and I know in our years at the score going backs, you know, and I can understand a color guy, a former player, not knowing who's retired and during the break and you got the raw feet up and they say, what are they all wearing those flowers for? And what's going on? And the play-by-play guy knowing and saying, I'll tell you the story. It's a, it's a great story. It's an emotional story. And that's why that story needs to always be told, not just about the poppies, but about what happened in World War I and World War II and everything else that we fought. You mentioned about fighting evil. Uh, you just wonder, and not to be holier than now for any of us, to just wonder if it was 1914 today, would the fights and the desire to triumph over evil still exist? Yeah. Do we... St- do we still have it? Would the youth still have Like I see some of the pictures. It, it's 18-year-old suicide coming off the boats and in the battles and the great, you know, there's, it's almost unwinnable to get off the U-boat. And, you know, and some of the movies have done an unbelievable job of the veterans saying, and they cry watching it saying, yep, that's as realistic as Normandy and other beaches were. And you think, uh, how could we ever, how could we ever tarnish their memory by ever just dismissing it or forgetting about it? I, I think that's important. And hey, when I was younger, you talk about the night that I would have listened to a game, woke up and talk about it the next day. And Glenn Dalgleish said, there's a guy in the WHA, his name Gretzky is really good. Yeah. Until he makes the NHL, we'll see. And then we had Remembrance Day and it was a national holiday and we had ceremonies at school. I, I just don't see or feel that anymore, or I don't see it at that level. And, and that's, I guess that scares me a little bit, Craig. Well, what, what I would say is, you know, is that as, as we move on with the years and as, as they pass, you know, it, it's not so much that we, that there's blame to be assigned or, you know, disappointment, the generation and, and starts with us and goes through like ultimate sacrifice. Like they didn't, it's not anything they had to know. It's not anything they had to live. Right. And our lives are better because of the sacrifices. That's what we have today is, is something that we should be so appreciative of because of the sacrifices that others were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. And that's, that's the message we got to keep sending. Right. And the message and, and the stories that have to continue to be told because 
you know, it's, we use the word sacrifice, but it was, it was what they were fighting against and what they were fighting for. And that, th- that will never change. If, if we allow evil and we don't, we don't stand up against it and we don't fight against it and stand up for what we believe in and then things that we value that other people have, have allowed us to, to experience and to benefit from, then we're, we're, we're deemed, we're, we're doomed. We're going to repeat history. <laughs> you know, we're, we, we are. And, you know, as, and, you know, I'll finish with this, Steve, and I, I, this is just me. I'm, you know, when we think about, uh, the great poem Flanders Fields, right? And you know, you know, it's in the Montreal Canadiens dressing room from failing hands. Yep. <laughs> you know, so you know, we 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 think about hockey players that went and fought in the war. They 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 postponed their careers. It wasn't like these were like many. They said, no, I we got to go and do this. And you know, you go back to. Uh, the latter part of World War II, there was a lot of players from the NHL that went and fought for their country and against evil. And we can never, ever, we can't, lest we forget are not just three words. They're meaningful, important words that we have to carry with us always. Well said, my friend. Speaking of the history, uh, many of those players who went and fought are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Foster Hewitt's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And Jerome Aginla is soon officially going to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. You're connected to Jerome on both sides of one of the greatest almost one-for-one trades that would have won both teams the Stanley Cup. The parabolic view, so I guess Martin Jelena didn't actually score that goal that Darren Pang saw on ABC in the in the commercial break. I live right off Newendike, and Joe's been here to see a sign named after him. You're connected to him, his family. Know the story about his mom, Jerome Aginla. So let's just start from Newendike, Aginla, scouting Jerome, and the talk in Dallas about one-for-one one and how it all came about, because it is a great story that I'd love you to share with us because we know and love both men. Well, uh, I guess you have to start with Jerome McGinley and you have to start with the uh, 1994 Memorial Cup. You know, the 1994 Memorial Cup. Yeah, the Kamloops Blazers were in the 1994 Memorial Cup. Jerome was but a young 16-year-old player. Uh, you know, Shane Doan was on that team. They had, a, they, they had a terrific group of players. Obviously, they were a very good team. But that's, that's when we first saw Jerome. And as the season, as the year went on, you're watching Jerome and you're, you're, this is a pretty good young player. We're going to have to watch, well, you know, him and Doan next year. Well, there was a lockout the next year, 94, 95. A lot of teams, Steve, cut back on their scouting. And, you know, we we had moved down to Dallas in, in 93 from Minnesota and Norm Green, our owner, Jim lights was our, was the president. You know, they really said, listen, for us to our lifeline here is scouting. Let's make sure that we, we, we don't cut back on our scouting. Les Jackson, who was our assistant general manager, such a wonderful, wonderful person. But one of the things that he, he, he really, and he, he, he led and everybody followed because it was the right thing to do. We used airline points, hotel points and everything to travel and to, to, to alleviate the financial burden on a, on a, on a franchise that was new, that didn't have revenues coming in. So we never stopped scouting and we feel really fortunate about that lockout ends January of 95. Now everybody's trying to catch up and all this, but we didn't have to do any catching up. 
I think it was a real benefit for him. It's not that people didn't know that Jerome was a good player. I'm not suggesting that at all. But a big part of scouting and, and ultimately selecting players is having confidence in what you've seen. <laughs> and the more you see and, and, and the, more, the more confident you can be in your assessments and then uh, obviously in your selection. And that's where we got to. Jerome McGinley, if I recall, was rated like 26th or 25th by NHL Central Scouting in the final rankings. And we were sitting there and like, you know, going, okay, yeah, you know, you, you evaluate Central Scouting does a great job. And, you know, like, where are we at? It's just another time for evaluation. Anyway, we ended up drafting him. And I'll never forget Frank Benello, who was running Central Scouting, came up to me and he said, Craig, you got to explain, like, uh, you know, why Jerome there? I said, well, we really like him. And it, it wasn't, I went back and sat down and I'm thinking to myself, like, why is he at? like, really? Like, like I, I got to answer to you. And I mean, I love Frank and he was wonderful. And then I realized I went back to Frank. I said, you're getting a lot of flack from NHL teams. Like they probably wanted to draft him and because he was rated a little bit lower. He goes, Craig, that's exactly what happened. They thought they're, you know, and so he was getting, how could you have this guy rated so low, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, you draft him 11th. Anyway, long story short, comes to training camp. He was a good player, but we, we were in hot pursuit of trying to find a centerman to play with Madonna. <laughs> and we couldn't find that elusive center. Keep in mind, Sackick and Forsberger in Colorado, okay? Uh, Eisenman and Fedorov were in Detroit, and we're got, we got Madonna. Like, we're happy, but we don't have another one. Anyway, Joe is sitting out, and so now we have to be interested. Fast forward, it, Al Coates was, was terrific. He, he looked for quality. He was looking for one thing, quality and quality alone. He wasn't looking for quantity. Oh, they're going to need a prospect and a player off the roster and two picks. You know, that's what we hear now, all the – you know, it's like – it's like this little checklist. Okay. What are they like? I, I can tell you right now, the next big trade, here's how it'll be reported. Well, team a is asking for a player off their team, two good prospects and a high draft pick. Like, it's like, give me a break. So you're quality. Saying should, they, you want Jack Eichel, Jack Hughes. That's it. That's the trade gone. See ya. Bingo. You, I was there, Steve. We were there. We right. were talking about no one died for Aguila. And yeah. so Al Coates was great. He was the manager at the time. He, and like, so that makes you a little uncomfortable. Trust me. Yeah. You know, we knew how good Jerome was. Did we know that he would score 600 plus goals? I mean, no, I'd be lying to you if I ever said that, but we, we knew he was a really good young player anyway, but it's Joe Newendike. <laughs> think about it. It's Joe Newendike. And so at the end of it, you know, like it makes you uncomfortable. Then you evaluate it. Here's the, here's the biggest takeaway. People ask me this often, Steve, you know, how, how many arguments did you have when deals? How, how many times did Bob Gainey just come in and say, this is what we're doing? I said, I don't ever recall Bob ever having to say, this is what we're doing. We would work through it. We would discuss it. And it became obvious what we were going to do. <laughs> Everybody had input. We had discussed it. We had considered it. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's where we got to go. Right at the end, this is what Bob said. He said, you know what? He goes, we've been looking for a number for a center to play with uh, Mike for years. He goes, Joe is... Uh, fits so perfectly and, and if we get joe we're going to be absolutely thrilled but to give up jerome we're going to be disappointed about giving up a good young player he says if we don't make the trade he said we're going to be thrilled to have a good young player like joe jerome mcginla and and we're going to still be looking for a, a centerman and i don't know where that will come and we will have to consider other things 
but this was the clincher. He said, we have a good young team. And right now, even though Jerome is a good promising young player, our other young players, Madonna and Hatcher and Matt and Chuck and Lettman, they're looking for more help today rather than in the future. And it was like, yep, this is the trade. <laughs> this is the trade. Yeah. And that's how it got done. And like, you know, and then Jerome went and I mean, he was a star at the world junior tournament and, you know, one of the things that I, one of the stories I tell, I, I, I phoned Jerome, had a good relationship with him and his family and, you know, told him what had happened, thanked him, you know, and he said, well, Craig, you never know when our, uh, when our, you know, what the future holds, where our, where our paths may uh, cross again. When I got the job in Calgary, he phoned me. He said, our paths have crossed again. Wow. He never forgot. Wow. <laughs> that is great. I've known you so long. I didn't know that. And we're talking, I mean, just two great people and and because you're connected oh. it's a great storytelling and i remember that boston world juniors first of all nobody was oh. there. sorry and jerome dominated i mean dominated and about the draft i mean i i could go it's retrospective analysis like you said you didn't think it would be that good but you got him at 11th he was the first overall pick i go to drafts when you go leon dreisaitl that's the first overall pick, right? Jerome, and it's easier in retrospective analysis. And there's some teams that had guys picked that played eight games above Jerome. One team, San Jose, had zero right before you guys. You, you won the lottery. And, and, and hockey won um, having Jerome in and play and dominate. And I have this still frame in my mind of Jerome coming out of the corner, Tampa Bay, Calgary, in games four or five, whatever the cup final, Jerome has, you know, a mugger on his back. He's got two rugby uh, guys hooking him under the arm. He, there's three or four guys mauling him as he powers his way to the net and rips it off the goalpost. The puck goes way in the air. He sees it, tries to track it down. They don't score on the play. Jerome today, okay? Jerome today, let's just say he's 25, right? 60 goals? If he's got Craig Conroy, Lee, oh, I was talking to Craig Conroy about this. He said, oh, Ovi, Matthews, Kyle Connor, Pasternak, if he's on, Jerome would be like, if you give him a centerman in this, in today's, today, right now, he scores 60 this year. How many, how many, how many players have scored 600 goals in the National Hockey League, Steve? 16, 18. Not very went, many. Not, yeah, not, not very many. Okay. Yep. Jerome scored 600 goals plus in the NHL and the way it was played. Right. And trust me, if he was in today's game, he would have had 750 because <laughs> Jerome could score off the rush. He could score off the one time or he could score in tight. And I mean, the, the thing too about Jerome is, he was driven to be the very best he could be. He honestly, like, I mean, he had his idols and like, like all of us, like you try to aspire to things, but for Jerome it was always like, okay, I got to be at my best because I got to get the next goal. And that next goal might've been the 17th of the season, but he was driven. And I remember he, he got mad at me. Oh, he was so mad at me when it, our team was struggling and we we're, we were making some changes. We'd made some additions and, you know, we, we named Craig Conroy and Bob Bugner co-captains. And I sat with Jerome. I was sitting right on the bench with him. And I sat with him and I explained what was happening, why we did it this way. I didn't want him to have a burden 
I didn't want him to have to answer every day for the woes of the Calgary Flames because he he wasn't any part of the problem. He, there was no, and I, I just, I was protecting him and thinking that like, this will be best. And I said to him, I said, Jerome, you're going to be the captain here. I said, you're going to be the captain. He goes, not here. I'm not going to be. And I kind of went, what do you mean? I said, yes, you're right. He goes, no, I'm not. I can't be. There's no way. Why am I going to be the captain if I'm the captain? And he was, I realized he was mad at me. All these years later, and then he, he I mean, Craig Conroy walked into Daryl's office the next season early on. He said, it's Jerome's time. And, and Daryl said, well, go tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it's so funny. Like, you know what I've realized all these years later? Jerome needed no protecting on the ice. He needed no protecting on the ice. You know, he took care of himself. He took care of everybody. You know what I realized all these years later? He didn't need protecting off the ice either. Craig Conroy told the protecting story. Chris Simon arrived. He skated by the Colorado bench and said, uh, I'm a flame now. No one touches Jerome. And Craig Conroy thought, oh, wow. The game went on. Craig Conroy said, nobody came near me. Nobody even came near Jerome. They scored a goal. Craig was having a nice night. So was Jerome. They come back to the bench. Craig looks to Chris Simon to say thanks. Jerome looks to Chris Simon and says, protect Conroy. I don't need no protecting. Basically, I can protect myself. Even after they're dominating. He didn't want it. He didn't want it. Unbelievable. So modest. And it's great. Oh, one, the phone call. I think it was Wayne. And Jerome said, who is it? It was Wayne. We need you to come to the camp. He, he loaded up the truck and went to Beverly, Red Deer, Calgary, that whole, like how the story goes. And that 0102 season was magical. And it started on the phone call, right, Craig? Well, it, it, it did, but, but think about this. J Jerome, too, who was up in Edmonton and the camp was in Calgary, gets the call. J Jerome thought somebody was playing a prank on him. He phones Peter Hanlon, uh, he, you know, with the Calgary Flames, uh, the, the VP of communications, you know, and he says, Peter, like, you know, like, who's pranking me? <laughs> like, no, no, this is real. Get it. <laughs> like, so Jerome loaded his car, boom, right down the highway, right? Like, in, you know, to the camp. And, and, and it was, it spurred him. It, it, it spurred him to, again, when I talk about Jerome too, like, you know, like he, he, he was so so focused on being the very best he could be. It didn't matter what, what it was, where he wanted to kill penalties, Steve, he wanted to kill penalties. And there was, this, there was this reluctance by the Greg Gilbert was a coach. Oh, I can't kill penalties. Well, he goes to the Olympics and he ends up killing penalties. I phoned Greg. I said, what are you going to do now? He's playing, <laughs> he's killing penalties for team Canada. I'll never forget it. First game back. We're playing St. Louis and St. Louis had a really good power play. Jerome goes out on the penalty, steps out, blocks a shot, goes down, scores on a breakaway. <laughs> you know, Greg Gilbert still thought he couldn't kill penalties. Like, oh. don't tell Jerome what he couldn't do because Jerome didn't. Jerome was driven to be the very best, and he was. I mean, he was. And let me just say this, you know, you know, we talk about we traded for Joe, and Joe came into our team in Dallas. And, it, and I can't begin to tell you, Steve, how phenomenal he was off the ice. I mean, Joe set a tone for our team in terms of, this is how it's done. Like, you know, and we had a good number of young players, but he was fantastic, right? Jerome didn't have the same thing in Calgary. Jerome had to go into Calgary and he, he had to be, he was, oh, this is what we got for Neuendijk. Neuendijk scored 50. Neuendijk's won a Stanley Cup. Oh boy, I hope this Iginley kid can be. Jerome didn't have the same support around him. 
So when we talk about Jerome going into a situation, not only becoming a great flame, the greatest flame of all time. Let me be clear on that. That's no disrespect to Lanny McDonald. I don't, yeah. I don't want, but he was, and the face of the franchise, the captain, but he represented the team, the city and himself in exemplary hall of fame fashion. I mean, honestly on the ice, off the ice and everywhere else we're talking about just hall of fame. He, he's, he's just, he, you know what he is? He's a regal person. Two things on Jerome. I mentioned tied with Joe Sackick, which they were line mates and teammates in 02. And then there he is setting up the Crosby goal, Iggy, and see what happens when he's on a team that he's not the only one circled. Like in Dallas, you guys had a lot of circles. Oh, there's Zubov and there's Belfour and there's Newman. And like, that's a lot of circles. But in Calgary, they circled one guy. So what you said was amazing. Uh, so he at 625 is tied for 16th with Joe. Curry's at 601, that's 20th. So 20 human beings in the history of the earth have scored 600 goals in the NHL, which makes that 02 season, I've said it before, I probably said it with you on television, I've said it with you on the radio, <laughs> so I'm going to just do the trifecta, the triple crown, and say it on the podcast. Jerome Ginla was robbed of the 2002 Hart Trophy. How the 52-goal, almost 100-point season when he was miles ahead of everyone else, not on Team Canada, not on the Dallas Stars, not on the 80s Oilers, but on the Calgary Flames. Granted, they missed the playoffs. Then it comes to voting. This is the thing when I tell my kids about voting. That's, that's an award. So awards are different from things you automatically earn. You get your 80% and you pass your LSATs, you're going to law school. No one can stop you. But when we vote, when we vote, Mario 199 points, doesn't win a heart trophy. That's a different conversation, but I'm still, I don't like to use the word angry or bitter. I can't believe he didn't win the heart trophy in 2002. If it was me and I was Gary, I would have co-winners starting now to fix a wrong. Where are you on what happened in 2002 and how Jerome McGinley lost a tiebreaker to Jose Theodore for the heart, who did have a great year. I'm not trying to say that he did not, but put it in perspective for say, a kid who's 30 now, was 10 then, and does not understand. So, and I'm glad you mentioned Jose because, because Jose did have a fantastic year. And, and, and th throughout the course of this, you know, sometimes we, 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 we forget how good Jose was and, and, yep. and, 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 and a total worthy candidate. So this is not about Jose versus Jerome. There was a number of voters that didn't even have Jerome on their ballot. And I think that, you know, I, I know with Frank Saravalli, who's the, who's the president now of the professional hockey writers association and, and, you know, manages the voting. He, 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 he was only a few years back that transparency came in that all the voters uh, ballots were made public as it should be. I, I am, I am all for transparency. So, you know, who, 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 who didn't vote for him? I have no idea. Right. But the fact that if you're a voter and you're voting on the award for most valuable player, I believe it was nine ballots. He wasn't on, on, not on, not, not, not first place, not set, not on. There's something seriously wrong there. And it's not Jose Theodore. It's the voters and, and those voters, they're the ones that have to live with their own conscience and try to rationalize their own stupidity. <laughs> Cause that's what it is. Okay. But now we go to Jerome. 
Jerome, I talked to you about being regal and gracious. He won the Art Ross Trophy. He won the Rocket Richard Trophy. And Jerome was the Lester Pearson winner. And how many times, Steve, you know, it's now the Ted Lindsay Award. How many times have you heard, and I, I don't think it'll be any different, when you're voted the best player in the league by your peers, you know, I think that that speaks volumes. And I think that the, the grace of, of Jerome, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, with, with Jose was also about him with respect to, hey, you know, I got recognized by my peers and that's pretty darn good. Yeah. So I don't, uh, I don't think Jerome, uh, you know, sits down. W would it be nice in the trophy case to have a heart trophy? Yeah, but it would still be second to the Lester Pearson. Well said. And it just, to put a bow on it, would have taken one point. One point tenth on any of the ballots because there was a tie. Jose had more first place votes. Yeah. One point. So when you talk about your vote counts, as we talk about Remembrance Day and, you know, uh, what can I do as a citizen? You, you, you want to do stuff? You can do a lot. One it's equals four equals 10. You want to talk. You want to march. You have a cause. It's, you know, we're, we're all in that together. And that's the thing about, you know, we do have a vote and it was a democracy. Um, in this particular case, there's a time where you sit there and say, wow, and really, this was, Craig, like this was, what is it now? 20 years ago, this made people say, and Craig Conroy on the show did say that night for about an hour after the award, Jerome was a, just a little off as he dealt with it in a very professional oh. manner. Well, again, a vote. Like, I mean, it's a, again, you know, I believe it was nine ballots. Didn't have them on. Think of what, nine? You don't even have them 10th. Like, the, the, you, you know what? It's, it's not only incomprehensible. It's reprehensible. <laughs> I am so glad that Frank and the Professional Hockey Writers Association, because I am a voter, put it out there. You know what? You want to have a vote? You be accountable for your vote. And I'm all for it. Uh, you, you know, you, you, again, we talk about, uh, you know, Jerome, and we talk about voting, and we talk about everything that goes with it, too. The, the other thing that I would say uh, about Jerome, too, is that, you know, we, we hear the word always oh, great teammate, great teammate, right? Jerome celebrated his teammates' successes <laughs> as much as anybody. And, and we're talking about one of the, like a greatly decorated player. And he celebrated his teammates' successes so much. A lot of people may not know this. In fact, I, I would imagine probably most don't know this. He scored 50 goals in that 0-1-0-2 season. He went and bought a watch for every single one of his teammates, training staff, equipment managers, uh, the coaches, and, and yes, even this general manager at the time, myself. It's, it's one of my prized possessions. It's not the watch per se, because it tells good time and it's a beautiful watch. It's what it means to me. And it's just another little story about how Jerome celebrates others and appreciates others. Hall of Famer in every single sense of the word. Wow. So our hats off this week and weekend and into next week for Jerome Aginla, Marion Hosa, Kevin Lowe, Kim St. Pierre, Doug Wilson, and of course, Kenny Holland had a great conversation with him uh, last week on Sirius XM. Another serious topic, Bob Murray, out as general manager of the Anaheim Ducks and will get help for alcohol abuse. 
This came suddenly over the last couple of days and the team will conduct a search for a, a new general manager. So did you know anything? You've been in that fraternity before. Are we going to just hear more and more about these things? Are, are, are people looking at themselves and maybe saying, you know what? I, I, I haven't done some good things. I haven't treated people well. I should step aside. Is are these one-offs, Craig? What what you're you talk to a lot of people, whether people know it or not, Craig, you're out there talking, people call you, you're you know, you're involved. What is kind of the buzz in your world as it relates to Bob Murray and maybe old school thinking or philosophy? Well, I I'll be straightforward with you, Steve. Uh, I mean, and 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 the, you know, old school philosophy. Old school is Steve, think about your parents, think about your grandparents. They're not emphasize good manners. Yep. Treating people nicely. Yep. Okay. That's old school, new school. That's everyday school. So when you're not treating people well and you've created a workplace that's toxic, it's abusive, no place for you. And we've had these abusive workplaces in, in every walk of life, in every industry, and they cannot be tolerated. And so, you know, Bob Murray comes out, resigns, says he needs help. Great. Good. Go get help. Bottom line, can't you're out, and he and he needed to be out. And here's where I go now to my next step. And it comes, and I said this, Steve. I said, like, I'm not going to sit here on a high horse and say, oh yeah, you, you know what? Come up with suggest. My suggestion was after the Blackhawk uh, uh, revelation in the report with Cal Beach, yeah, is that every single member team in the National Hockey League, 32 teams, need to do a forensic audit of their workplace environment. In every single regard, hire an outside firm investigation to do it and report back. And remedy, number one, understand where there's been problems. And if, if there's been serious problems, how they're remedied, whether that's the dismissal of people but, and, understand, and then understand how we're going to build a better workplace. Every single NHL team should do it. Forensic audit hired from an outside thing, because I'll tell you what, Steve. This ain't the end. This ain't the end. And it's not just in hockey. Hockey's a microcosm of sports, and sports is a microcosm of society. We saw it in the we've seen it at the, at, at so many different levels. We saw it in the in at NBC with Matt Lauer. We saw it, you know, in the movie industry with 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 Harvey Weinstein. And you know what? It it's lots of places. It's lots of places. It cannot be tolerated. End of story. Bob Murray needed to go. And I hope he gets the help that he needs, but he cannot be in that type of an environment and that type of a role leading and act that way. End of story. And we're not talking about someone yelling at somebody or come on, you know, being responsible for their job here. We're, you know, those are, there's certain things that people say, Oh, come on, this person's a snowflake, like sucking up and let, let's go. We're talking about something way beyond. I'm disappointed with you. You're, you're not doing your job. You're phoning in sick. And I saw you at the football game and you're, you're costing the company. And we're, you know, we're not talking about managing people and, and having conversations. We're talking about what you're saying is way above and beyond. We're, we're talking about what's, there's something that's close to being offside, and we say, well, let's deal with this. We're talking about something that's 20 feet offside that can simply – there's a difference as we kind of – I'm not playing devil's advocate here. I'm just trying to say it's different between, you know, I was yelled at yesterday at work. Well, what happened was, well, I, I was drinking on the job. I can't believe they're – you know, we're not talking about something like that. We're talking about something here about saying above and beyond, intolerable, abusive, toxic, that nobody should stand for, but only a third party, Craig, might help it. Because if your boss comes to you and you're thinking, 
hmm, you're part of the problem. I want to tell, you know, the, the guy at the water cooler. No, because it's going to come back to me. And guess what? I'm gone. It needs to be somebody that you can trust to say we have a, a problem here and it needs to be fixed. It takes a lot of <sighs> power protects power. Okay. That's what we found here. Okay. Just think about, and, 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 and there's many examples, okay. Where people knew and didn't do anything. They didn't right. do anything. And power, well, I knew well. I got to keep my position of power because, you know, this is person going to protect me. No, no abusive behavior, toxic workplaces, any type of abuse and, and, and harassment, sexual assault, uh, her, you know, although any type of that behavior, it's wrong. It's wrong. And hopefully, hopefully that people find the strength and find the courage to be able to speak up and say, we can't have this. And, and the second, and I give the Samuelis a lot of credit because somewhere along the line, they had, they've, people went to them and they said, we better start an investigation. Because remember, Bob Murray was put on administrative leave after initial findings, after initial findings. <laughs> They didn't wait till the end of the report. They said, uh-uh, uh-uh, not tolerated. 32 NHL member teams should do a forensic audit of their organization. That's my that's one of my suggestions to eradicate toxic, abusive work environments. Everybody deserves the right to work. It doesn't mean that you don't sit down, you get feedback, and you say, hey, listen, you know, we get a little more from you. Here's some of the areas where we think you can improve. But the, the other stuff, your, your word, intolerable, can't happen. I don't think it's that. I, I really believe that this is not the end, nor should it be. We need to eradicate it as, as much as we can in as many places as we can. He's Craig Button. I'm Steve Coolius. Google Button Uncensored Hockey Podcast. Lest we forget, take a time to think. 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 See you next week.